John 14. Now, before we get to, well, no, go ahead and read that. John 14. And then I'm going to jump back to Job. So if you want to be fingering your way back to Job, John 14, verse 1 begins, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Oh, Father, such great words. Thank you, Jesus, for setting us straight on this and clarifying for us what you meant and, and, and what, this, what this journey really depends on. I pray, Lord, that you will increase our faith this morning. Uh, possibly, Lord, bring someone to faith who has questioned and doubted. And for those who have walked a long time in this world, I pray for some energy and strength to the walk. And I ask, Lord Jesus, that you will simply bless us with your truth, with your word. Breathe on us your spirit as we listen in this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for anyone convinced that things have never been so bad, listen, 4,000 years ago, a man's life of ease fell apart. And his name was Job, and many of you are familiar with the story, if, if not the name. And for such an ancient text, literally a 4,000-year-old text, we believe that Job lived around the time of Abraham. And so for one so long ago, you would think, that's got to be completely irrelevant to my life today. And yet, read the book, book of Job. Job chapter 3, verse 25 Job says, for what I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I am not at rest, but turmoil comes. Anyone felt like that in the last six months? Where your life of ease has been upended or fallen apart? And then Job had some friends show up to, to uh, as it were, give him comfort Eliphaz was one of these idiots, one of these friends. And uh, in Job chapter 5, verse 7, Eliphaz says, For man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. He was wrong. We were not born for trouble. One of the things to understand, by the way, about studying through the book of Job is you got to know who's talking. Because if, it's, because if it's Eliphaz or Bildad or the other guy, they don't really know what they're talking about. They're espousing things that are not necessarily even right. It's in the Bible, but it's these guys giving their opinions and Job arguing back, and they go back and forth. They banter one side to the other, and they try to come to some conclusion, but there is no conclusion. Literally, for 31 chapters, Job's theologically misguided friends try to speak into his pain, and they turn it all into a theological debate. That's the last thing anybody needs when you're hurting. I don't need theology, I need understanding. You know, I don't need teaching, I need compassion. 
when I'm hurting. And Job was hurting and trying to figure it out himself. When Eliphaz says, man is born for trouble, that's just the way it is, Job, as sparks fly upward. Well, we were not born for trouble. We were born for the love of God. We were born for eternity with him, for relationship with him. We were born for peace and love. We were born for joy. He created us in his image to experience life as he knows it. We were born for God, not for trouble. But when all you can see is the residual sparks flying upwards out of the ashes of a once promising life, it's hard to maintain a positive outlook. And a lot of people, believers and non alike in our world, are having trouble maintaining a positive outlook. Just when you start feeling better, something else happens, something else hits. Now, apparently, it's, it's what is it, monkeypox? Watch out for the monkeypox. That's going to shut down zoos across America right there. In Job 19, verse 25, Job is defending himself, and he actually comes to a point where he says, I need a redeemer. He starts crying out for a redeemer. What's ironic is the redeemer he's crying for isn't God. He's complaining to God about the fact that he needs a redeemer. And he says, as for me, I know that my redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Job knew what he didn't know. See, he didn't know in his head, but he knew in his heart there, there has to be a redeemer. There has to be a redemption. But he struggles to know the identity of this redeemer. And finally, after all this, a young man speaks into all of this bluster. And the young man's name is Elihu. Elihu, who stays silent for 31 chapters of Job, finally speaks up. Elihu's name, by the way, means he is my God. And Elihu is the first one to offer wisdom. He speaks, I think, in character, kind of like the Holy Spirit would be speaking to us. So Elihu enters the fray. And in Job 33, if you're there, turn there and check this out. Job chapter 33, verse 12. Elihu says, Behold, let me tell you, you are not right in this. For God is greater than man. Why do you complain against him that he does not give account of all his doings? Indeed, God speaks once or twice, and yet no one notices it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when sound sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, and then he opens the ears of men and he seals their instruction that he may turn man aside from his conduct and keep man from pride. He keeps back his soul, man's soul from the pit and his life from passing over into Sheol. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with unceasing complaint in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his soul favorite food. His flesh wastes away from sight. His bones which were not seen stick out and then his soul draws near to the pit and his life to those who bring death. Verse 23, watch this. If there is an angel mediator for him, one out of a thousand to remind a man what is right for him, then let him be gracious to him and say, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresher than in youth. Let him return to the days of his vigor. And then he will pray to God and he will accept him that he may see his face with joy. And he that is God may restore his, that is God's righteousness to man. He will sing to men and say, 
I have sinned and perverted what is right and it is not proper for me. He has redeemed my soul from going to the pit and my life shall see the light. Behold, God does all these oftentimes with men to bring, get this, to bring, listen, to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be enlightened with the light of life. Elihu says, Job, your pains, your turmoils, your trials are not to make life hard for you. They're to bring you back to God. They're to turn your heart to the one you need. But notice this back in verse 23, and we're in Job, not Job, but we gotta know this right now. If He says, if there is an angel mediator for him, one out of a thousand to remind a man what is right for him, then let him be gracious to him. An angel mediator. Angel mediator is Malak Malis. A Malak Malis, a messenger mediator. My friends, there is a messenger mediator and his name is Jesus Christ. And he's the one of whom Elihu speaks prophetically. If there's an angel mediator, a, a Malak Malis, a messenger mediator, if there's one who can speak grace, let him speak grace to help Job understand, to help us understand that when these trials come and when our trampolines flip upside down on our cars <laughs> and when life gets seriously painful, there's a messenger mediator, just one, not one out of a thousand, one out of billions just one who has ever existed, one who redeems our lives from the pit. One mediator, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 25, the old priest Eli is speaking to his foolish sons, and he says, if one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? That's the problem. For we have all sinned against the Lord. And when you sin against God, there's no one to mediate for you. No man can mediate for you between you and God. There's only one mediator. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, where Paul says, there's one God, one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony at the proper time. The Hebrew pastor simply calls him Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Job desperately needed Jesus. He needed that messenger mediator to help him see his way through his troubles. Now Elihu comes, another man, and speaks wisdom, and finally God will speak to Job and spin him around and help him understand that the only one that matters is God himself and that all of our lives are about coming to him regardless of what happens or sometimes depending on what happens. You know, we need the difficulties and the challenges and the painful moments to turn us around to trust in him and not ourselves. That he may bring us back, that he may save us from the pit. This is what Job needed to see his way through his troubles. Can you see your way through these troubled times? We are all living together in troubled times, no question. War, violence, murder, a woke and wicked world. Seems like human depravity right now is just running wild and unchecked and out of control. And we look around and even on my best days, I think, man, this world's messed up. Maybe your trouble's more personal than that. In fact, a lot of times, maybe our own personal trouble is so deep that we're not even paying attention to the world. Yeah, the world's a mess, but my life, 
hurting marriage, maybe a hopeless condition, loneliness, money worries, medical concerns, fear of the future, all of these things that can really cause a person to have blinders on. Can you see through the trouble? Listen carefully to a person who's drifting. Jesus says, I am the way. To one who is deceived, Jesus says, I am the truth. To one who's dying, he says, I am the life. And to anyone just trying to find their way home, Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me. You know what that means? It means there's a way to the Father. No one comes to the Father but through me. But through me means, yes, there is in fact a path to God, a way to get home, and Jesus now gives directions. Now, the only directions in this life worth listening to. But he begins, note this, back in John chapter 14 with an imperative, an imperative. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. In the Greek, that's in the imperative form. It's a command. Jesus is commanding right now that their hearts not be troubled. Now, we pointed this out recently in chapter 13, that in chapter 13, verse 21, his own heart was troubled. Recognizing the betrayer, calling out Judas, this is just before Judas would leave the room, Jesus' heart was troubled, but Jesus refused to let it control him, and now he looks around the room at 11 deeply troubled men with fear and concern and worry on their faces. Jesus had just said, one of you is gonna betray me. And they're all wondering, is it me, is it me? And then Judas leaves the room and they don't realize that it's him. And Peter says, I'll stand for you, Lord. And Jesus says, Peter, before the cock crows, you're gonna deny me three times. So you gotta wonder if the other apostles were thinking, it's Peter who's gonna betray him. They're all wondering, they're all concerned, and they're all consumed with the the darkness of the hour. And Jesus looks at their faces and says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't let trouble own you. Don't let it define you. Don't let it erode you. And pay attention to this. The tense here is present. Do not let your heart be troubled. It's present tense. It's right now, immediately. When Jesus speaks these words, though we take them across 2,000 years, he's talking to the apostles and he tells them right in the moment, don't let your hearts be troubled. Cheer up, guys. The tense is present. The mood is imperative. As I said, it's a command. The voice is passive, which means this. The passive voice in the Greek means that the subject is acted upon. Okay, I I don't understand that. What do you mean? It means Jesus is saying to them, stop being troubled. Right now, I command you to stop being troubled. I was gonna have John play this on on the screens, but I'll just tell you about it because it's easier. And because we live stream, there's issues with that. So if you've ever seen this, if you haven't seen that, you need to go onto YouTube and look up Bob Newhart, Dr. Spitzer. He's a psychiatrist and he's sitting in his office. And I may have even told you about this a while ago, but a psychiatrist sitting in his office and a woman comes in and sits down and he says, I want to explain to you how we do things here. Um, I charge $5 for the first five minutes and then nothing after that because we'll be done. 
She says, okay. He says, understand, I, I, I take cash only, and it's $5 for the first five minutes. And she goes, okay, well, that sounds great. I understand that. He says, all right, go. She says, go. He says, tell me your problem. She says, well, I have this debilitating fear of being trapped in a box. He says, trapped in a box. Yeah, I, I, I can't go in elevators. I can hardly go inside a house because I'm just afraid that I'm going to be buried alive in a box. And he says, so your fear is that you're going to be buried alive in a box? Yes, he says, so you have claustrophobia? Yes, I do. And he goes, okay, I want you to listen very carefully to me. Two words, two words. And she gets out a pad and pencil. Should I write this down? He goes, no, no, no. Most people can remember this. Two words. You ready? She says, yes. He goes, stop it. (laughs) Stop it. And she's, what? Stop it. Just stop it. Stop Yeah, stop being afraid of being buried in a box. Just stop it. And she kind of goes back and forth with me and keeps saying, stop it. Over, You've got to see it. It's so funny. And then finally, he goes, okay, well, so we're done. And she goes, well, it's, it's only been three minutes. And he goes, yeah, it's, it's been three minutes. She goes, but I only have a five. I can't pay a $3 dollar per minute. And he says, he goes, well, you can have this full five minutes if you want. He goes, you have something else? And she goes, yeah, yeah. I have this this fear of intimacy. Stop it! (laughs) He just keeps hammering away at this. And you know what? There is such brilliance in that. Because that's what Jesus is saying here when he looks at the troubled faces of the disciples. He says, stop it. Don't let your heart be troubled. Stop being troubled. There's a parallel passage to this, a parallel verse. Psalm 46, verse 10, cease striving. And know that I am God. Now, other translations will say, be still. And be still sounds rather poetic, but it's cease striving. Stop it. And know that I am God. If you're striving, cease and desist. If you're troubled, don't be. Stop it. Stop being troubled. God is speaking to troubled hearts. And this, I hope you get how amazing this is. Simple but profound. God speaking to troubled hearts this morning, looking at you and me in hearts that are in trouble, he would say to us, he would command us, knock it off. But God, you don't understand. Yes, I do. Stop it. Stop being troubled. But, but I'm stressed. Stop it. But I'm worried. Stop it. But I don't know what. Stop it. Do not let your heart be troubled. Now, you might be saying, that's okay. That's crazy. How do you command calm? I mean, can you demand peace? Jesus does. That's exactly what he's doing. You know what this means? It means God understands that we have direct control over our hearts, that we can stop it if we choose to, if we want to, if we'd rather wallow in the worry and the misery and the trouble. Well, we can do that too, but we have control to stop it. We manage our emotions. They don't manage us. I just can't help myself. I'm so stressed out. I can't take it anymore. I can't handle this. Yes, you can. And I love when people say, I I I can't take any more of this. I want to ask them, okay, so if more of this comes, what are you going to do? Well, I just can't take it. Okay, what are you going to do? You have control of your emotions. 
You have control of your heart. There is an act of will in becoming untroubled. And if you're still sitting here going, Rick, you just don't understand my trouble. No, but I I read about Jesus' trouble. I know about what the apostles were going to face in their lives. I hear his words. These are not my words to you. These are his. And he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Don't go there. You control that. You decide that. A choice is made, and the choice is a refusal to fret or to despair or to stress. It's called self-control. Galatians 5.23, it is the ninth in the line of the fruit of the Spirit, which tells us it's something the Spirit does in us and grows in us and, and cultivates and develops in us. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, Peter writing says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers, get this, of the divine nature. We actually get to feed on the divine We actually get to take in something that is greater than ourselves. And he says, partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. Choose moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And listen, in your knowledge, self-control. Self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. And right at the heart of that, these are all things, as Peter calls them out, these are choices we can make. These are decisions in our lives. I can decide to choose moral excellence. I can decide to choose faith and diligence and knowledge and self-control. And truly, the more I know Jesus, the more self-control is available to me. Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And the word discipline is also translated sound mind or self-control. You control your emotions. You handle these things. We have a choice in all of this. Jesus never asks us to do anything that, listen, that we can't do. He never asks us to do anything that he hasn't done himself or hasn't gone through himself. He's already weathered it, experienced it, but he never asks us anything that we are powerless to do. He only asks us of those things that he knows that we can follow through on. So when he says, do not let your heart be troubled, listen to him. It's a command, and he speaks to you and to me this morning. You don't have to have a troubled heart. That's up to you. Do not let your heart be troubled. Carson says, on this night of nights, when of all times it would have been appropriate for Jesus' followers to lend him emotional and spiritual support, he's still the one who gives comforts and instructs. You know what we see? When you look at Jesus, you see one who had more right than anyone in history to be filled with trouble, to have a troubled heart, and yet he's the one instructing and comforting and encouraging. Why? Because he chooses not to have a troubled heart. And you have that same choice before you. But listen, 
to settle our troubled hearts, to choose this by his comfort and his instruction, there's something else that is also an imperative. Jesus commands that we make this choice, but he goes right on to say, believe in God, believe also in me. Faith is an imperative to choosing an untroubled heart. Imperative, absolutely. Believe in God, he says. Your heart troubled? Choose not to be troubled. How, Lord? Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is, again, a spoken imperative, a command, and it is the key to untroubling our hearts. Notice he says, you believe in God. In fact, literally translated, you believe in God, believe also in me. What does that mean? You believe in God whom you can't see, so believe in me. And it's not only a statement for right then, but also for days to come when they would not see him anymore. And what Jesus does here is he calls for an equivalent faith in God the Father and in God the Son. He links himself with the Father. You want an untroubled heart? You want to choose this as I'm commanding you to do so? Then you believe in God, you believe in me, and Jesus suddenly becomes the legitimate focus of our faith. Believe in me. Trust in me. And this will only intensify with every word that he speaks. Believe in me, he says. Remember all the I am statements that we've gone through in this gospel? I am after I am after I am as Jesus commands the same level of trust in himself that once was called for to the Lord God. You trust Yahweh, you trust in Yeshua. And by the way, if you do not trust in Jesus, you do not trust in God. If your faith is not in Jesus Christ, your faith is not in God. You cannot bypass him. You cannot diminish him. Your faith is in him and through him and to him. And the rest of what he says, if you don't trust him, it's not gonna bring any comfort at all. Believe in God, believe also in me. In verse two, he says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. Are you comforted by that? Verses two, three, and four, when you hear that, when you read that, when Jesus says, I'm gonna come get you, and I'm working on a place for you right now, does that bring comfort to you, followers of Jesus? See, it does to me. We're singing, I'll fly away, and people are getting excited and happy about this idea that I'm not gonna be here any longer, that my troubles will be over, and I will be with the Lord, and that is good news and a good thing. It's knowing where we'll be going. I need to know where I'm going. That helps, you know. If we get in the car and we're heading off on a family trip, I wanna know where I'm going. I'm not a big fan, by the way, of Waze and Google Maps and all the others. I just, I don't trust those platforms, to get me there. What I want is I want to sit in the back seat and let my dad drive so I don't have to think about it. I don't want to worry about it. I just want to know I'm going to get there because I know the one who's going to get me there. And listen, your room is going to be ready for you when you arrive. I go to prepare a place for you. He's working on it right now. You know the old Keith Green thing, if God's been working on heaven 2,000 years, he took six days to create the world? and he's been working on heaven 2,000 years, this place is a garbage can compared to what's going on up there. 
And I love that statement. So we think about this, and it's comforting. And that's why Paul says, by the way, 1 Thessalonians 4.18, therefore comfort one another with these words. He's talking about the rapture of the church. These are comforting words. This is not fringe, bizarre, weird stuff. This is comfort. That a day is coming when you will be home immediately. You don't have to pack. You don't have to worry about how you'll get there. You don't have to consult a map. You're just going to be there in the twinkling of an eye. And these are comforting words. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 tells us, we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So even if my body's breaking down, okay, this is not the end game here. Thank you, Jesus. But I have a home. I have a house that's waiting for me. Hebrews 13, 14, here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. And these are comforting words. For the troubled heart, seeking to be untroubled, this is just, hey, where we're going is already laid in, it's being prepared, and it will be ready for you when you arrive. But did you hear his description of it? In my father's house. In my father's house are many dwelling places. Now, the King James got off a bit translating that mansions. In my father's house are many mansions. Okay, first of all, that's weird. How do you put a mansion in a house? That doesn't construction-wise work real well. And people have for a long time, in fact, the Mormons have gone way off on this. Oh, yeah, we all have our own mansion. No, no, no. You're misunderstanding what Jesus is saying. He's speaking to troubled hearts, and he says, at dad's house, we have a room ready for you. Now, I don't know what that does to you, but to me, that just sounds so welcoming. I'm going to my father's house. My room's ready. It's all prepared. I love the sense of that. We've got rooms in the father's house. And I'm gonna let you sit on that for a week. We'll talk more about that next week. But Jesus, when he describes the father's house, when he says, hey, in my father's house are many rooms, he doesn't get into the stunning four-faced cherubim. He doesn't mention them. He doesn't mention the fiery seraphim or the 24 crown-throwing elders. He doesn't mention the myriad angels or the emerald-encircled throne or the crystal sea or the lights and the flashes and and the, the truly tremendous sound of the worship, which is awesome, and it's overwhelming, and it's amazing, but but it can be a little much, especially when the heart is troubled. I, I can't even conceive of that stuff right now. I'm too worried, I'm too stressed, and you're telling me about this massive, magnificent throne room, and Jesus says, in my Father's house, you've got a room. You've got a place. It's so almost casual, it's so common, it's so peaceful the way he describes this. Listen, I love passionate worship and awesome praise, but sometimes I just wanna go home. Yeah, let's be honest with each other. Have you ever felt that on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night when everybody else is rocking out to the praise and you're like, I just want my pillow. I just wanna be, I just wanna take my shoes off and kick my feet up and be at home And Jesus says in my father's house, I've got a room for you. He assures us that home will be ready, our room's prepared when we arrive. But but keep going for this morning. Verse five, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? I love Thomas. Because Thomas asked what everybody else is thinking. You know, Thomas just says it. He's honest, he's right up front, 
And everyone else is sitting there going, I don't even know what he's talking about. He's going somewhere, and I don't know. And Thomas finally says it, and I can just see Peter going, yes, thank you for asking. (laughs) And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is number six of the seven I am statements of Jesus. Note that. I point out to you again, six is the number of man, and if there's one thing that humanity needs more than anything else, it's to know I am the way and the truth and the life. This is what we need to know. Amen. This is what gets us day to day, week to week, month to month, and all the way home, that he is the way, and he is the truth, and he is the life. These are three quieting yet strengthening, um, calming yet confidence-boosting realities for the journey home, for the troubled heart. When Jesus gives the command, he gives us a way to follow through. He says, I'm the way. I'm the way. Let's break this down. I am the way, Jesus says. In, in Greek, it's hehodos. Hodos, the word hodos is a vivid word in the Greek. It actually is used to describe three different things. I am the way. First off, it describes a cleared road, a cleared path, straight and true. The way. We're not picking a path here with Jesus through dense underbrush or slogging through thick salal in a blind, mysterious, uncertain forest. Jesus says, I am the way, and he is straight and true. He's clear and obvious. There's a lot of religion in this world that's very murky and mysterious, and you gotta find your way through it. And Jesus just says, I am the way. It doesn't get any easier, any more simple than this. He is the cleared road. Do you remember what John the Baptist said back in John 1.23? He said, and he was quoting Isaiah, he says, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. A straight way, a cleared road. And the way was made straight for Jesus to enter. A a clear path. That was John the Baptist's role, to clear the path so that the people would be ready. Here comes Messiah. Do you realize that God did that? He didn't just show up. He sent a forerunner to say, I'm about to show up so that the people could be ready and could know And to anyone who says, ah, God is just so mysterious, he cleared the way. And John the Baptist was getting people ready and saying, Messiah's coming, he's right on my heels, be ready for him. After after me is coming one whose, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's coming. John the Baptist cleared the way, so the way was made clear. Some might say, but isn't the way narrow? I've heard the way is narrow. Yes, it is. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, the broad way. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are only a few who find it. Why is the way narrow? Understand the way is straight and true. It's a cleared road. Why is it so narrow? Because very few take it in the grand scheme of things. And because there's only one way, and it's only taken one by one by one. 
Listen, while we are a, a body, we're the body of Christ, finding Jesus isn't like a crowd share. It's like, it's not a massive movement. It's one person at a time because finding Jesus is one heart connecting with his. It's one relationship after another. It's one person after another. So the way doesn't have to be wide. It's narrow because it's just you choosing him and off you go. And I choose him and off I go. And we're all on that way if we've chosen him, if we're following him. But it's a cleared road, straight and true, this, this phrase, I am the way, hejodos. Secondly, it means a charted route. A charted route like a course plotted for a ship. A charted route through the seas. Psalm 93 verse 4 says, More than the sounds of many waters, the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Hey, your seas may be troubled, your life may be wavy, but the Lord on high is mighty. So even when the seas are stirred up, he's given us a chart, the word of God. And he has given us his spirit at the helm to navigate these waters. A chart that we can use that helps us to understand the way that we follow and his spirit to help us navigate. So a cleared road and a charted route, but the word way also means a channeled river. You'd use the word way, hejodos, for a river in its riverbed. Waters along a riverbed that direct the river where it is to go. Kind of like Proverbs 21, verse one, that says, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So Biden really isn't control, in control of the direction of this country. Now, any king can mess things up big time. Presidents and potentates, they can make a mess of the world, but ultimately, it's gonna end up right where God decided that it would end up. He still is sovereign. Isaiah 43, verse two, says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. I am the way. Get this. Jesus doesn't say, don't worry. Don't let your hearts be troubled. I've driven that road. I've navigated that sea, and I have guided on that river. No, Jesus says, I am the road. I am the course. I am the river. It's me. I am the way. In other words, to know me is to know the way. If you want to find your way home, then you need to know me. He, this, is, this is huge. He completely turns around our thinking. Our thinking is religiously, I got to find a way to live this life. Jesus says, forget about that. I'm the way. So what do I have to do, Jesus? Know me. Know me. Remember Nathaniel's first meeting with Jesus? This is, this is awesome. Nathaniel comes up and he's talking to Jesus and he's realizing something about who Jesus is and he's impressed by Jesus and even calls him the son of God. In John chapter one, verse 50, Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on Jacob's ladder. It's not what he said. Now he's describing Jacob's dream of a ladder from earth to heaven and angels ascending and descending on this ladder. But when Jesus describes this to Nathaniel, takes from this direct dream, Jesus says, you will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. 
I am the way. I am the way. He describes himself as the ladder to the Father's house. I am the truth, he says. I am the way. I am the truth. Truth there is aletheia in Greek, and it, and it translates a couple of things. First off, genuine reality. So aletheia is the real deal. It's that which is expressed, revealed, disclosed. This is, it is what it is. That's truth in the word aletheia. Jesus already said in John 8, 31, if you continue in my word, you are truly disciples of mine. You will know the truth and the truth will make you free. This, this absolute, this certain thing, and that's what aletheia is, a, a certainty. Now the word truth assumes something is knowable. It assumes something is absolute, not relative or up to the person. That's truth. That's truth. And the Greeks use this word to describe a certainty in three primary areas where they would apply it. They would apply it in law, they would apply it in history, and they would apply it in philosophy. Law, history, and philosophy. That in law, there must be truth. Law must be based on what is true and verifiable and measurable, which is why our American laws are getting so messed up. Because law should be based in what is true. Okay? History. History is based on what has happened. What we know has taken place. And so historians have long written down what actually took place Unless you happen to be a revisionist, unless you happen to be someone who's coming along saying it didn't happen that way or we want to ignore what happened back then or we, we're going to pretend that it didn't take place. But history is something based on truth. Philosophy. Philosophy at its outset was about seeking what was true. About using the mind to think through and process to discover truths in this world. And yet, law, history, philosophy, these things all get muddled in our brains, don't they? I mean, law, just find some loopholes, which is what lawyers do. If you're a lawyer, no offense, but, but that's what they do. They find a way around the law as opposed to adhering to the law. Uh, not all lawyers. There's some good ones out there. I'm, I'm sure if you're in our fellowship and you're a lawyer, you're one of the good ones. But, and if I've offended you, that's not what I meant. Plenty of loopholes to law. All of a sudden, law that's supposed to be based on truth, well, we can dance around that. And what about the historical record? Well, <laughs> if history offends us, we just rewrite it. We revise it to fit our political agenda. We're seeing that happen right now. How about truth and philosophy? Philosophy, again, was based on finding truth. What was true? What was actual? Although... It was the Greek philosophers who first suggested the idea of relative truth. Listen to me. Relative truth, by definition, is an oxymoron. Do you understand what I'm saying? There is no such thing as relative truth. Truth is truth, period. By definition of the word, what it means is that which is real and actual and absolute. You can't say relative truth. You can't say something is relatively absolute. It either is or it isn't. She's relatively pregnant. She either is or she isn't. And by the way, you can't say he's relatively pregnant. Just saying. 
Relative truth is an oxymoron. It is a completely foreign concept to the Hebrew mindset and to the Old Testament. Do you know that? There's no concept of relative truth. This is actually relatively new in our history, this idea that truth can, can be shaky or whatever you make it. Truth is not what you make it. Truth is what it is. It doesn't depend on what you think about it. It depends on what actually is. And Jesus says, I am the truth. See, truth is not an erratic idea. It is a constant. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. He is truth. You can depend on him. And by the way, the most literal translation of aletheia is non-concealment or unveiling that which is real, or get this, revelation. Revelation. I am the truth. There are 66 books in the Bible. One, and what is that? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. I am the truth. Jesus Christ, God revealed, absolutely. Then why have so many people missed it? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14, their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. To this day, whenever Moses is read, and, and Paul is talking about Israel, he says, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Truth, revelation, reality. You can know what is. Jesus doesn't just speak truth. He says, I am the truth. So instead of studying the law, we just walk with him. Rather than reading historical records, we just talk with him. And in place of all the empty ideologies and guesswork philosophies in the world today, we learn from him. Because he says, I am the truth. He is truth in and of himself. Turning your Bibles over to Ephesians for a minute. Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians four. Paul explains this so beautifully and why it's a problem even in our world today. I am the way. I am the truth. Ephesians chapter four, verse 17 he writes, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. How's that? In the futility of their mind. The futility of their mind. Where we live in a world now where it's all about what you think. It's not about what is. It's about what you got in your head not what is before you as true and actual and legitimate. That's why this whole, this whole gender thing is so crazy because it's all about what people want or want to think of themselves as opposed to what they actually are. This is truth. I am a man. It, that, I can't change that. It's the way. You can move flesh around. I'm still a man. My chromosomes don't lie. <laughs> That's true. Now, I can think differently. I can say, well, I identify as this, that, or the other. It's not true. I can play the game in my head. It's futile. It is the futility of the mind. That's what Paul's describing here. That's what's going on in our world. And he says, being darkened, verse 18, in their understanding, 
excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of heart. See, the spirit doesn't want to know, therefore the mind can't. And they, verse 19, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Now, I just want you to note really quickly, in those couple of verses, Paul just described the problem. The whole futile way of thinking comes from a hard heart and a callousness, and then what happens? You give way to lust. So there's a pattern here that we see playing out in the world right before us, that the hard heart and the futile mind goes after sensuality. Man, it just explains everything. The practice of every kind of impurity and greediness of the sin and the mess that we see in the world is because of hard hearts and futile minds. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as, note this, truth is in Jesus. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the aletheia, the truth. This is true. Jesus says, I am the truth. I am absolute. You can count on me. He is authentic. He is the authentic certainty of God. And we realize God in real, true, absolute relationship with Jesus Christ. I am the way. I am the truth. Is your heart still troubled? Then listen to the third thing he says. I am the life. I'm the life. And by the way, it's not I am the way, the truth, and the light. I've heard Christians say that because we get confused. We, we put two verses together. Well, I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the light. No, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, not the light. He already said, I am the light. That, that was, you know, um, number, number two, the, the second I am statement. I am the light of the world. That's the second I am statement. This is number six. I am the way and the truth and the life. And what Jesus does here is he lays claim to being the very source of life itself. I am the life. In John chapter one, verse four, John acknowledged this saying, in him was life and that life was the light of men. So the fact that he's the light of the world springs from the fact that he is life in and of himself that we can see comes from the reality that he created us in the first place. That our lives exist because he is life. The word life here, by the way, it's zoe in the Greek. And that word carries with it not the idea of mundane existence. How's your life? Well, this is the life. Mundane, day-to-day life. That's not what zoe means. It means dynamic, living power. It's vitality and vigor and vibrance. I'm the life, he says, It's life that gets a frail, weak heart all the way home. So in my days where I feel mundane or in my days where I'm feeling weak, he's life. He invigorates. He empowers. You might say, well, that that all sounds poetic and philosophically nice, but what does that mean that he empowers me to get home? How does that work? Let me be explicit. Remember Ezekiel's vision? 
Ezekiel, God said, I want you to go out in the valley, Ezekiel, and I want you to check something out. And so he goes out to the valley and he sees piles of sun-baked, scorched white, bone-dry bones. And they're all lying around. He sees all of this and suddenly the bones start rattling. And all of a sudden they stand up and, and, and then sinew starts to form over the bones and muscle attaches and flesh covers them. And there's an entire army standing there before Ezekiel. Wow, awesome. Not alive. They're not alive. They're just zombies. You know, no movement, just standing there. These human shells, these bodies. And they're not zoe innervated, vibrant, moving, active until Ezekiel 37 verse 10, I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them, the ruach, the spirit. The spirit came into them and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. By the way, Jesus is just words away now from getting us into the promise of the spirit, which we're gonna get to in a week or two. The Holy Spirit who abides in us. You want to know how to have life that's not mundane? The Spirit in you will bring vibrancy and vitality to your life. Remember Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. So if this life is wearing you out, if it's tearing you down, if you're exhausted and weakened and troubled, then Jesus says, I am the life. I am the life. Come to me. John 20, verse 31, John said, these things have been written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name, not fear, not fret, not worry, not disturbance, life. Come to me and have life. Come to me and your life will be bold, and I'm not talking about every second of every day. I'm talking about a life lived that actually does have purpose and meaning to it. And we've been saying this a lot lately. That life begins right now. Right now. I am the life. Let's go. Let's be alive in Jesus. He is the source of our life strength, our energy, our power, all that I need to get home. It's Jesus. And if you want even more explicit instructions, if you're not sure what I mean here, he says, I am the life, then you just need to spend time with the life. Because I guarantee you, and I know this by experience, the more time I spend with Jesus, the more alive I am. The less time I spend with Jesus, the more worn out, weary, and tired I am. That's just how it works. You want a life alive, you need to walk with the sun. Colossians chapter three, verse three says, if you have, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. I am the way, Jesus says, and the truth and the life. Thomas Kempis once said, without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing, and without the life, there is no living. But then Jesus says something here that knocks every other suggested or proposed route right off the map. He says, no one comes to the Father but through me. It is the most profound absolute in the New Testament. 
You cannot get to God but through Jesus. One way, only one. It actually is, is a, a double-edged sword. So troubled hearts, listen. This two-edged sword of what he just said. First, it means that Christianity is not one of many ways. It's not. Be assured, it is the only way. Every other religion, every other so-called faith or belief system or lifestyle choice or philosophy in the world, every other way is powerless to get you to God. There is no other way. Christianity is the only way home. And when I say Christianity, even that, not as a religious construct, but Christianity as a life, a following after Christ, Christians, little Christ going home, the only way. Second, to note about this, not only is this the only way to get to God, but eternal salvation is therefore exclusively through Jesus. This is the verse that really riles the coexister because now I got to go scrape that stupid bumper sticker off my car. <laughs> this is the verse that upsets the revisionist or the universalist or the deconstructionist. Have you heard about deconstructionism? This is kind of a, a somewhat recent thing in Christianity, deconstructing our faith, and there are a lot of uh, people kind of philosophizing along those lines. And, and you know, I, I don't want to speak too much against the idea because I don't know a whole lot about it. I just don't like the sound of it because the Bible says build up your most holy faith, not tear it down. Deconstructionism in Christianity is the idea of tearing down all the rituals and traditions and all the things that we know, just kind of ripping it all apart, shredding it and breaking down the building to get back to what is true. So I understand the idea there, but we are to build up our most holy faith. Let me tell you something. As a 57-year-old man, there are things I believed and taught, I was taught as a kid that I ceased to believe in my 20s, 30s, and 40s. Now I am starting to re-believe them. I'm starting to recognize, wow, that, that really was good. That really was true. That was one of those absolutes. So be careful deconstructing anything. Build up your most holy faith. Hey, if it's not of Jesus, it's gonna fall on its own. If it's not true, it's not gonna last anyway. Don't worry about that. You focus on, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You follow after Jesus because no one comes to the Father but through me. And the problem with that statement for some people is it's just too absolute. No alternatives, nowhere else to turn, no one else to go to. Human philosophy would change the whole thing and, and, and it would read like this. I am one of many ways, one of a number of truths, one of several lifestyle options. Every person comes to their own God in various and sundry ways and on their own terms. That, that is in essence what Non-believing people are trying to say, you do your thing, you, you do you, I'll do me, your truth, my truth, whatever truth. That is so shaky. That there's no substance to it. That, that leaves me sitting there going, what if my way's not right? Or, 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 or what, if, what, if, what if my way's gonna end up in hell? What, what if, what if it, it, I end up, how do I know? I just wanna know, how do I know? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus could not have spoken it more clearly. 
but to live by relative truth and different, you know, number of truth and whatever you want to believe and all of that, you know where that gets you? Lost. It just gets you lost. There is no other way. There is no other truth. There is no other life. There is no other way to the Father but Jesus Christ. And verse 7, he says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. As he sits there in their midst and they're looking at him. Now, Philip's going to jump in in just a minute and say, Lord, show us the Father. And we're going to talk about that on Wednesday night. Jesus just said, you've seen him. Hello, I'm right here. I'm going to end with this. Why is there only one way to God? I've been asked that question. People don't like that. Well, I don't like that there's just one way. Well, first of all, I'm sorry. Please hear me. This is not meant to be restrictive. It's distinctive. It's not limited. It's obvious. It's unambiguous. It's unmistakable. In other words, God made one way to himself through Jesus Christ so that no one could possibly miss it. There's no other way to go. You don't need Google Maps at all because there's only one way. How do you get here? Jesus. How do you drive there? Jesus. One clear road, one charted sea, one river, just one that flows one direction to the Father, one absolute truth that you can count on, one life that we can tap into for eternity just one way, and the only way anybody could possibly miss this is to choose to miss it, to say, I don't want that. 4,000 years ago, the young man Elihu was spot on. He tended to Job's troubled heart by saying, Job, you need the messenger mediator. You need that redeemer. Jesus Christ, so do we. And he says to you, and he says to me this morning, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And you can count on it. Come to Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, and you'll come to God, and your room's gonna be ready for you when you get there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is just the front edge of some of your most remarkable teaching, so pertinent, so profound, and so encouraging. And I thank you for these words. I thank you for starting us right here. And I pray for our fellowship that we would not let our hearts be troubled. Right now as I pray, I want to encourage you, think for just a second, what is troubling you? Or what in the last few days has troubled you? What has concerned you? What has worried you? Think about that and hear Jesus say to you right now, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe God, believe also in me. Jesus, that, 
That alone, we can stop right there and I'm good to go. I choose to trust you. I choose, Lord, to believe in you. I choose to look to you, not to anybody else. No other pastor, no other friend, no other helper. I look to you because you are the way, the truth, and the life. I trust you, Lord. And I pray that that simple trust would, Lord, would infect our fellowship, would move among us in such a way that we just, we just know the truth. We know the way. We know the life. We believe in you and we lean on you. And we choose not to be troubled, but to take heart in you, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray if anyone is struggling with their heart troubles right now, that you will give them the self-control to choose life. I pray this in Jesus' name.